0: For those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Turks, one of the associate pastors. And uh, way back in July, way back in uh, July, I did a four-part series uh, called "The Law and the Old Testament." And the reason I didn't just call it "The Law" was because I had wanted to get to some things in the Old Testament that aren't in the Law. I didn't get to those things, obviously. And now I'm preaching this weekend and next weekend before I go on holidays. And so this is my chance to get the Old Testament part of the Law in the Old Testament. Uh, done. And so what I want to do this weekend and next weekend is I want to answer a couple of questions, and, uh, and they are the questions I most commonly get as a pastor here at Cell Fund. I most commonly get the following two questions. Uh, people phone me up, they want to meet with me, they email me, and I get this regularly, almost weekly, I would say, uh, close to at times. Um, but people are asking, some of you, people from outside the church, and they're asking. Uh, you know what is this with all these wars of extermination and all the the violence that God is that we see God commanding in the Old Testament? What's that all about? How can God be a loving God in the midst of that? And then the other big one I get all the time, and this one's mostly from women, is I get the question about polygamy. Okay, why does God seem to uh, seem to be okay with polygamy in the Old Testament? All right, and so uh, people are bothered by these things. All right, and and so. These are the questions I want to deal with in the next two weeks. And, uh, and so also things like the flood. People have big questions about the flood. And this is from outside of the church as well. They say, you know, how can a God be so harsh as to wipe everybody off the face of the earth in a flood? All right? Stuff like that. And then people compare. I also want to spend some time next week comparing uh, Islam to uh, the God of the Old Testament. Because what some people are saying is that Islam and Christianity are no different. Islam preaches violence, but so does the Bible. And I want to show you how the Bible is totally different from the Quran, and Christianity is totally different from Islam. And just like I did throughout the Law Series, I want to show you how God is loving and merciful in everything we see in the Old Testament, All right. And so those are the questions we're going to deal with over this weekend and next weekend. Now, today what I'm going to do is I'm just going to lay a foundation because too often what happens when we get to the Old Testament is uh, we ask the wrong questions, or we ask good questions, but we ask them in the wrong order. And so before we can even answer questions about why is God commanding violence in the Old Testament, and why, is, why does polygamy seem to be okay in the Old Testament, before we even answer any of those questions, we first have to answer the question of why are these things in the world to begin with? And so today, I want to, what I want to do today is I just want to lay a foundation, and so the first point of this message today is going to be called, uh, All of the World's Problems Explained. Pretty amazing, hey? Eh? <laughs> You're looking forward to that point. That's a good one, eh? So I'm going to tell you all the world's problems explained. I'm going to spend this whole message pretty much explaining to you all of the world's problems, okay? And once we have that for context, at the end of this message... We are going to talk a little bit about the the flood, and I'm going to show you, and hopefully you're going to see the flood in a whole new way you never have before, and then next weekend we can, when we have the context and the background for the world's problems, then we can start to answer specific things as to why would God command this type of a war over here, or why would God allow this over here, all right? So it's all about context, today's about context, and we're working towards uh, explaining Old Testament violence and polygamy and those sorts of things, all right? So bow your heads with me, and close your eyes, and then... We'll get into this. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, Lord Jesus, I just want to pray this morning that we're going to be built up in your word, and I pray that we're all going to leave here today more in love with you, more confident in your scriptures, Lord Jesus, more desiring to eat your word. Jesus, you said that meditating on your word is life. That real life comes from feeding on the Word of God. Lord, we, are, we have blanked out big pieces of the Bible that we don't feed on because we don't understand it. I pray today that you would begin to give us understanding. I pray that your character, your love and mercy and justice would shine through in everything I say today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, let's start with the grandest name of a point, I think, that I've ever had in a message, and that is all of the world's problems explained. And so let me explain them to you. Let's start with the very beginning. This is the context. This is the backdrop for the Old Testament. This is the backdrop for all of the things going on in the world today, and it starts with this, when God made the world, he made it all good. This is real important, okay? I'm going to explain to you all the world's problems, but you first have to understand that when God made the world, he made it all good. Okay, so people are walking around and they're looking in the Bible. God is okay with polygamy and God loves violence and all sorts of things. And let's just go back right to the beginning and let's find out the fact that when God made the world, none of those things was in it. All right, Genesis one thirty one, a verse we've looked at many many times before. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. Okay, when God made the world, there was no death, there was no disease, there was no cancer. Okay. None of these things. There was no, uh, you know, killing tsunamis and earthquakes and all these things. None of those things were in the world when God made it. God made the world very good. And that point is so simple. And in 10 seconds there, I've just given you something that you, we all need to remember the rest of our lives. Because people are always accusing God. Why does God allow this? Why didn't God stop that? They look in the Bible. Why does God say this? And the first thing we have to remember is that none of those things were God's idea. Not a single one. God did not make those things, all right? So the next question then is, well, how did they get here, right? Okay, if God didn't make them, how did they get here? And the answer is, it comes through human choice. Let's look. Romans chapter 5, Paul says this. and we're going to look at the rest of this passage. I'm just going to put up one line here to start, and then we'll get to the rest of it. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Okay? Now this is a very, very important point. God did not make the world with violence and polygamy and genocide and war and disease. Okay? He didn't choose for that. Adam sinned and sin came into the world. Okay. So where are our problems coming from? Let's just remember right off the bat where war and violence and rape and all these things come from. They come from human choices. Human beings choose wickedness. God made a world without wickedness. And I just, you know, sometimes I just get passionate because I just, I'm standing up for God's character in a world where Christians don't even stand up for God's character. We just kind of, people throw these accusations against God and we just kind of sit there going, I don't know. God made the world perfect when Adam sinned, sin entered in the world. Mankind chose sin, all right? I want to you look at the effects of this, all right? Because some of you might be thinking, okay, well, human choices—that explains the war thing, and you know, the polygamy thing, and the, and the violence thing, and some of those things—but it doesn't explain natural disasters. But actually, explains every evil thing in the world, all right? And so let's look at the rest of this. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Okay. Now look what Adam's sin did. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. Okay, now I want you to look at what it says next. Okay, now I'm jumping ahead to Romans chapter 8. For all creation, okay, nature itself, all creation, is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation, he's talking about nature here, the earth itself, the universe, all right? But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, okay? So when Adam and Eve sinned, so human choices brought evil into the world, a world where there was no evil when God made it, that stuff was not in God's mind to be in this world. Human beings chose evil, but their evil didn't, when we choose evil, it doesn't just hurt ourselves, it actually, it was a scientific event. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, it was a scientific event, death and decay entered into the cells of every living thing in the universe, death and decay entered into the physical processes of the universe, and we got this thing called entropy, where things started to run down. And things started to decay. That was a scientific event that happened when Adam and Eve sinned. Sin didn't just hurt themselves, it hurt everything God had made. All right? Hurt everything disease, destruction, tsunamis, earthquakes. All of it comes out of sin entering into the creation. And so creation now is groaning. Creation itself is groaning, wishing for the day when everything's going to be healed up and we're not going to have these problems anymore. And I want you to notice something else is that it's not like God didn't warn Adam and Eve, okay? It's not like Adam and Eve, you know, innocently walked around, grabbed the apple, disobeyed God, and then, whoa! Didn't realize these would be the effects. God clearly, clearly warned them, all right? Genesis 2, 16 to 17 says this. God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, okay? God put a clear warning label. He said, death is coming in. Death is coming into my universe, and there's, this, and there's no death here right now, but death is coming in if you disobey me. And so that one thing, Adam and Eve made that choice to rebel against God. It wasn't just eating an apple. It was rebellion against God. We're going to look at that later in this message. But the moment they chose to rebel against God, they sent a ball in motion, and everything else that has followed since then was just the inevitable result of choosing that path there was two paths in front of adam and eve one was life and goodness and harmony everlasting and but the only thing is there was a catch there's a catch to walking this path by the way each of us here today has this choice every day There's this path where the fruit of the Spirit is there, love and joy and goodness and a relationship with God. There's just, and of course we all say, well, we want those things, so why don't we walk on them? Why didn't Adam and Eve walk on it? Because there's a catch. There's a cost to walking on this life path. The results are good, but there's a cost to get those results. And what's the cost? Well, there's a few, but here's just a couple. The first cost is you have to be fully submitted to God and do what He says. And another cost is that you've got to be humble. You've got to think of others better than yourself. You've got to think of God as knowing better than you do. And a third cost is you've got to be a servant. You can't live for your own pleasures. You've got to live to serve others. You've got to live to serve God's kingdom. But this path, so we all want the results of this path, but for a lot of us, we don't walk on this path because the cost is too high. We want to run our own lives. We want to live for our own selves. Why would I serve God's kingdom when I can stay home and watch this movie? So we want to take the easier path. And here's the amazing thing about God. He lets us have a choice. And he let Adam and Eve have a choice. Here's path A, life everlasting. It's so good. And Adam and Eve said, we don't like the cost for it, though. We would rather take the easy path. An easy path is, I can choose to do whatever I want, whenever I want. I can just run my life however I please. I can live for my own pleasures. I can be selfish and proud. And, and at the beginning, this path is much easier to choose. It is. That's why so many of us choose it so often. But the thing is, it leads to separation away from God, which is death. And so Adam and Eve chose this path over here. But once you get the ball rolling on this path, then everything else just follows. You separate from the one who is the source of life. And now what you get is death in the creation. And now here we are, Adam and Eve's descendants thousands of years later. And we go, well, why does God allow that? And why does God do this? And why is there disease on the earth? And God doesn't care about people. And look at this famine. And God does all this sort of stuff. And I go, human beings chose this path. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, you'd like to get your hands on Adam and Eve. (laughs) Isn't that true? You'd like to just grab Adam right now and just give him a good choking, right? And you're wondering, why do we all got to suffer for what Adam and Eve chose to do? Why do we all got to live up in this messed up world because of what Adam and Eve chose to do? And you know, I've had that thinking too, okay? And then one day, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he said, uh, Chris, did Adam, when you sinned, Adam is Adam over your shoulder telling you to do it? Well, no. Is Adam pushing you to do it? Is he forcing you to do it? It's like... You didn't want to do that thing, but Adam's behind you making you do that thing. And no. And I bet for the rest of you here today too, that's true for you too, isn't it? When you make sinful choices every day, Adam and Eve aren't there making you do it. They're not telling you to do it. They're long gone. None of us here today has ever talked to Adam and Eve. We've never been forced to do anything by Adam and Eve. So you know what that means, right? The only difference between us and them is that they went first. That's the only difference between us and them. See, if you would have been in the garden, if you would have gone first, you would have done it. And you prove it every time you choose to sin. All they did was eat an apple and I'm betting everybody here has done worse than that, yeah? So human choices, we can't blame Adam and Eve. Their choice of the two paths was just a little more profound in the sense that sin hadn't entered the universe yet. So when they did it, that's when sin first came through the door and came into creation. But every one of us is part of the problem. Every time we choose to have our own way and to live our own selfish desires, we choose the path of separation from God and death. And so all of the world's problems, everyone, the natural ones and the man-made ones, they're all actually man-made. God did not desire any of, the, any of these things in his creation. And he hasn't once tempted any of us or forced us to do something bad. He desires for us to choose this path. Just as he desired Adam and Eve to do so. Now, <clears throat> I know something else that sometimes people think about this whole thing. You're saying, well, okay, fine. There's this path. Adam and Eve chose the wrong one. You and I every day and every week, we choose the wrong one. But you're thinking to yourself, I think God's a little harsh here. I mean, isn't, isn't death a little bit of a harsh uh, you know, punishment for disobedience? I mean, why, why does the punishment for sin have to be people dying? Why does the punishment for sin have to ultimately lead to famines and tsunamis and earthquakes and riots and all of these things? Why does it have to lead to that? That seems a bit severe. Isn't that true? We think, like, why couldn't God just give Adam and Eve a slap on the wrist and it goes back to perfect? So let me explain this to you because, see, we have a total wrong concept about how death and sin relate to each other. See, we think of death kind of like a parent who's got a kid and the kid just did something bad. And so those of you who are parents here, you know what that's all about, okay? Say your child does something bad, they disobey you, and now you have to come up with a discipline, okay? And there's a hundred different disciplines you could use, right? And depending on which book you read recently or which radio show you listen to, uh, you know, you, you could have all these ideas, right? I mean, you could make them sit in a corner. You could take away their favorite toy. Uh, you could sit them down and just talk to them face-to-face and tell them that what they did was bad. You could spank them. You could do, oh. <laughs> Shouldn't say that here in Canada in public, eh? Uh, you could do all these things, right? 100 different disciplines you could have. So your child did something bad, and you just kind of got to come up with a discipline for what they did was bad, and that's how we think of death. We think Adam and Eve sinned, so God's like, okay, What's the consequence for sin? And he's got this whole list of different things he can do and he decides, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to invent this thing called death. I'm going to invent diseases and tsunamis and I'm going to fire that at them and that's the consequence for 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 their doing wrong. And that is completely the wrong picture of how death and sin relate to each other. How you need to think of death and sin relating to each other is more like when a light goes off. When you turn off the light, what happens? It gets dark, okay? It looked there for a minute like some of you were a little confused. You didn't know what was coming there. I know it's early in the morning, okay? You turn off a light, it becomes dark. Now, why does it become dark? Did God create light and darkness? You know, did He create light, and then when you turn off light, darkness turns on? No. See, darkness isn't a thing, God never created darkness. Darkness isn't something you can create. All darkness is, is the absence of light. Yeah? So when I turn off the light, I'm not turning on darkness. All all darkness is, is the absence of light. If there's no light, we call that no light state darkness. But darkness isn't a thing. The same is true of the relationship between, uh, of death to sin and death to life. Death is not a thing God ever created. God did not, after Adam and Eve sinned, God did not just think to himself, okay, and I'm coming up with a real good punishment, death. And he throws death at them, that's not what happened. Here's what happened. God made the universe out of nothing. That means all life comes from him. He is the source of all life. Life doesn't come from non-life, okay? Whatever your high school you know, science teacher tells you, okay? Life doesn't come from a rock. Life doesn't come from nothing. So God created the universe out of nothing. He is the source of all life in the universe. He is life. He is goodness. He is love. He's all these things. When Adam and Eve decided to blatantly disobey and disrespect and rebel against him, they were rebelling against life itself because he is life. They didn't think of it that way. They had gotten all suspicious about God, thought he was holding out on them. But when they rebelled against him, they rebelled against everything he is. And so when they decided to disobey him, a wall came up in their relationship between them and God. But here's the thing, you put up a wall between yourself and life, now what happened? You just turned out the lights. You just turned out the light on life. And when you have an absence of life, what you have is death and decay. Death and decay isn't a thing that God made. It's not a a discipline he thought up. Human beings chose to turn life off. And what you get then is death. It's the automatic result. It wasn't like God had a hundred different choices and he chose death as the punishment he would give us. Death is just the darkness when you turn out the light. Does that make sense? So Adam and Eve, now of course it didn't just affect Adam and Eve, did it? Because uh, God had given mankind uh, dominion over the earth. So when they put up a wall between themselves and God, they also put up a wall between creation and God. Because the creation, God had said, here's man, here's the earth, man, you're over the earth. When, they put a wall in between the, when we put a wall between ourselves and God, that wall affects all of creation. And so you have death. Human beings, you and I, have chosen death. Technically, Adam and Eve did it, but we show every day that we would have done the same thing. We are part of the problem. Very, very important. So, let's just briefly review everything we've learned so far. It's very simple, isn't it? Okay? All of the world's problems. Here we go. God created the world. It was all good. It was full of life. There was no death. Okay? Man chose sin. Sin separates us from God, who is the source of life. And therefore, sin is the source of all the death in the world around us, all the death. From war, to genocide, to famine, to nature, to everything, it's from sin. Sin is the problem. Does that make sense? Sin is the blame. Okay. Next question now, because some of you, and people outside the church, not just you guys, but people are probably thinking, well, why doesn't God, if God was a loving God, He can do anything? Why doesn't He just cure the sin problem? right? I mean, if sin is the source of all this bad stuff, and if sin is to blame, okay, and mankind chose sin, why doesn't God just cure? It's like, I mean, if, if you got a cancer patient, and a cancer patient has can- cancer, well, God can do anything. Why doesn't he just cure the universe's cancer, which is sin, Okay? And the fact that we ask that question, the truth matter, it is there for all of us. And it's not there necessarily in those words. I'll tell you the more the words it is. We open up the newspaper and we see rioting in Britain. We see famine in Somalia. We see these horrible things. And we go, why God? Fix that. Well, I've already showed you today that he can't fix that. Without fixing sin, because this stuff is just the symptom of the problem, which is sin. God can't fix those bad things in the newspaper without fixing all sin. So you say, just fix sin then. And the fact that we say that shows we have no understanding of two things. First of all, the nature of sin and how close to home this problem comes. Let's talk about the nature of sin for just a moment. How would God clean up sin out of the universe? Because if he cleans it up, all the other stuff's going to work itself out. How can God clean up sin? What is sin? Well, the first thing I want to tell you is, sin is not a thing that can be cleaned up. Okay, let's talk about lust. What is lust? Is lust a thing God can sweep up, put it in a bucket, and chuck it out of the universe? No. What is lust? Lust is a person lusting. Lust is not a thing. Lust is a person lusting. What is murder? Is murder a thing God can sweep up? Is genocide a thing God can sweep up, put it in a bucket, and chuck it out of the world, out of the universe, and, and clean up the universe? No. Murder is a person murdering. What is covetousness? Is covetous something God can ball up and chuck out of the universe? No. Covetousness is a person coveting. See, the world's problem is sin. But sin is not a thing God can clean up. Sin is sinners. So, now you're starting to see where I'm going with this. What is the only cure for the world's problems? What's the world's only cure? Well, its only problem is sin. Sin causes all this bad stuff we see in the newspaper and everything else. How does God get rid of sin? There's only one way to get rid of all the sinners. Now, how many of you still want God to fix all the problems in the newspaper? Let me help bring this home for you. How many of you have unsaved family members, kids, friends, or coworkers? See, when you get mad at God and say, why don't you fix all this stuff in my life and fix all this stuff in the newspaper, and he says, okay, you want me to come back today and fix it? All those people have to go. All of them, every single one has to go. Because sin is the cancer and those things are the symptoms. All of them have to go. See, it's the, God, we're saying, where's God's mercy? God's so harsh. How can you look down and see all these people suffering? It's exactly his mercy that he doesn't clean it up right away. It's his mercy and patience. So that he doesn't have to get rid of, he's trying to get rid of as few sinners as possible. Look at this in 2 Peter. Verses 3, 9, chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some counsel He is not slow. Someday He is going to clean up the world, and there's going to be no more death, and there's going to be no more disease, and there's going to be no more of that stuff. Amen, hallelujah, it's going to be wonderful. But He's not slow. He wants that too. We want it. He wants it. But He's not slow. He's patient, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. See, to get to a clean world, you've got to get rid of all the sinners. You can't just get rid of sin without getting rid of people but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, by the way, the day of the Lord, that's the Bible's uh, name for the day when Jesus comes back and cleans everything up. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Okay? So that's the first thing. The universe's problems are all caused by one thing, sin. There's only one solution for all the world's problems, and that is get rid of sinners. Well, now it's like, whew, there's a whole bunch of unsafe people that have got to go for that to happen. It's God's mercy that he hasn't come yet. But I know what some of you are thinking, you wouldn't voice it, but you're thinking, oh, I didn't really care for that unsafe family member that much anyway. <laughs> right? That's what some of you are thinking. You wouldn't say it, but that's how you kind of feel. It's not really a big deal. So let me just bring us even a little bit closer to home yet. How many of you have sinned in the past week? I don't want to ask for a show of hands because I know in this church there will be very few and I don't want to embarrass the one or two of you that did it, okay? (laughs) I wonder how many of you here today looked at some lustful things. You didn't do it because you had to. You didn't do it because you were made to. You did it because you chose to. I wonder how many of you here today, in the last week or two weeks, you looked at some real dirty, disgusting movies and you just watched it and let that into your home. Or how many of you cut down someone at work? Or you belittled your spouse? or you lost your temper, or you told an obscene joke or whatever. Okay? You say, but I'm a Christian. God doesn't have to get rid of me. Okay, good. You have a relationship with God. You love Him. You're submitted to Him. You're trying to obey. You're right. You'll be, if you are walking with Him genuinely, then you will be saved on the day of cleansing, the day of judgment. Okay? But... If he were to come here today and clean up the world and get rid of all the unsaved people, he has to also get rid of every undealt with thing in your character. Everything that you haven't dealt with by the time Jesus comes back, every sinful thing, every sinful habit that you're just hanging on to, and all that worldliness and selfishness, guess what? That has to go too because that's part of the problem. So you say, well, what's God going to do to me? to to get rid of it. Okay, I'll tell you, and I'll show you in Scripture. He's going to burn it out without an aesthetic, let me add. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15. But on the judgment day, the day of cleansing, when God fixes the world. He don't fix. He can't fix. I want to just keep repeating this and repeating this and repeating this. He cannot fix tsunamis and famines and natural disasters without fixing the sin problem. And He can't fix the sin problem without fixing sinners. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. Speaking of Christians, the fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. How many of you would like to be taken through a wall of flames today? Not me. See, it's God's kindness that's leading us to repentance right now. You and I still have time before he comes back. We have time to humble ourselves, get on our knees before him, get accountability, pursue him and love him instead of the things of the world. Because if we deal with it now, he doesn't have to burn it out then. Much better to deal with it now. And may I just say this, this is just a little rabbit trail, because I'm sure in a church this size that we have some people here today and you've got some hidden sin in your life right now. And maybe it's, a, it's an affair you had or something you've been looking at or something you did or you lied or you stole and you're too embarrassed to tell anyone. Guess what? If you leave that thing there undealt with, then it's going to hurt a lot more when Jesus deals with it. You know what? It'll hurt much less to deal with it now. Bring it out. Let me encourage you today here. If you have hidden sin in your life, bring it out. Confess it. Tell lots of people because it's going to be public when Jesus burns it out. So tell pastors, tell leaders, tell your spouse, deal with it because a little bit of embarrassment now is a lot better than flames later. Let me show you another amazing passage that I bet most of you have either not read or when you read it, you just kind of skimmed by it, okay? This is a great passage. Very colorful language here. This is Amos chapter 5, 18-20. And this passage is written to apathetic, worldly, selfish Christians who don't deal with their issues. And they are talking about things that they don't know anything about. And what they're talking about is they're saying, I wish God would come down now and clean up the mess in the world, and they don't realize that they're a big part part of the mess. Let's look at this passage. Wonderful passage. Look at this. Let's meditate on this. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, okay? The day when Jesus is going to come back to cure the world's sin problems. Why would you have the day of the Lord? In other words, why do you want me to come and clean the world up? Why do you get mad at me when you look at the newspaper and say, how can you let that happen in the world? Okay, why do you do that? Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. God wrote this, okay? Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? This is what God says to apathetic, worldly, selfish Christians who complain to him and say, why do you let all this suffering happen on the world? And he says, why are you asking me to clean it up? Because the day I come to clean it up is going to be like as if you were walking down the the road one day and you run into a lion. Ah, You turn around to run, Poof! you run into a bear. Ah, You turn around, you get inside your house just in the nick of time, you go, and you put your hand down and a serpent bites you. That's the day of, of, of cleansing. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment, because now all of you are going, I don't want Jesus to come back. <laughs> this is not written to every believer. Okay? Jesus wants the people who love him and who follow him and the people who are humble and they're trying to serve him. Nobody's perfect. They're not perfect, but they're doing the best they can. Jesus, I want to love you. Jesus, I want to serve you. Jesus, I want to deal with the selfishness of my heart. Those people who are dealing with their stuff and going after him, he, there are many scripture passages. He wants you to long for his day. It's going to be a wonderful day when he comes back to clean things up because you're not part of the problem. And yeah, there'll be some cleansing that he may have to do in you a little bit here and there, but if you've been humble before him, he's on your side. This is for the proud and the worldly and the selfish and the people who just, they call themselves Christians and they go to church on the weekend and they say all those things, but really in the heart of hearts, they don't really care at all about going after God. And he says, for them, me fixing the world's problems is going to be very painful because you can't fix the world's problems without fixing sinners. Does that make sense? I think it does. Well, i got to make sure I get to have time to get to the flood because I want to talk about the flood today. But Let's talk about a couple of wrong assumptions about sin first. Okay? Because I still know there's a bit of a gap. I'm trying to cover all these gaps today in our thinking about sin and what happens around the world. Because some of you still have a gap. You are still wondering to yourself, how does my being a little selfish or how does my being a little lustful or how does my being a little obscene What does my little sins over here have to do with the big evils that happen in the world? People dying. And you just can't make that connection. I don't think those things are the same, Chris. I think God could fix those without having to hurt me too bad for these. So what I want to show you is that you have two. The fact that you think that or can feel that shows that we have two wrong assumptions about sin. Here's the first wrong assumption about sin. That there is such a thing as a little sin. We have this idea, like these things are big, there's a big gap between, and then these things over here are little. And what I want to tell you here this morning is that there is no such thing as a little sin. In the same way that a person has cancer, there's no such thing as a little bit of cancer, then that's not bad. I mean, let's let's imagine that you got cancer all over your body, okay? and a doctor just fights it hard, and you get all these treatments, and he gets rid of all the cancer out of your body except for one patch in your pinky finger. And he comes to you and he says, hey, we got rid of all the cancer in your body, and it's all gone, and you say, oh, it's 100% gone? Well, 99% gone. There's one little aggressive patch in your pinky finger there, but we'll just leave you there because, I mean, it's not going to kill you to have something wrong with your pinky finger. And you would say, cut the thing off, radiate it, burn it, I don't care what you do, but you get that cancer out of the pinky finger too because you can't just, there's no good cancer anywhere in your body. If we leave this thing, it's going to go somewhere and do something bad. There's no such thing as a little sin. When Adam and Eve, uh, what did Adam and Eve bring death into the universe by doing? Eating an apple. That doesn't sound like a big sin, does it? It doesn't sound like a big sin. So you say, "Well, well, how does eating an apple have such big consequences. Let's me just let go back a little bit because I want to show you it's not just eating an apple. There's no such thing as I was just a little selfish. I was just a little angry. And we put that word just in there as if these sins are not a big deal. Let me show you the background of what goes on behind the scenes of a sin. God puts Adam and Eve on the earth and he gives them every good thing they could possibly imagine. He gives them dominion over the entire earth. He gives them uh, healthy bodies. He gives them life forevermore. He gives them the ability to enjoy pleasures. And then he gives them many things to enjoy. Many good foods to eat. Many good things to do. He gives them purpose on the earth. He gives them a perfect relationship with each other. He gives them a perfect relationship with him. And he's the giver of all joy and goodness and love. So they have this wonderful life. It's an amazing life. Incredible. It's like heaven. And what is the only proper response if someone just gives to you and gives to you and gives to you and loves you and loves you and loves you? What is the only righteous response to that kind of generosity? I'll tell you what it is. Gratitude. Adam and Eve should have been overflowing in abundant gratitude. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for each other. Thank you for life. Thanks for creating us. It's so fun just to be. should have been thankfulness. But instead of thankfulness, what did they do? Instead of focusing on the thousands and thousands of blessings and pleasures they got to to have and the relationships and the purpose, they looked at the one thing they couldn't have. By the way, this is the same seed that is behind most of our sins today still. How good has God been to you and me? Some of you can't even... Think about how good he's been because you've been focused on the bad for so long. How good has God been to you? He sent his only son to die for you so you wouldn't have to go to hell. That one thing right there is enough. Every morning, get up, do a little jig, crank the praise and worship music up high. He loves you. Now just try to list the other dozens and dozens and dozens of things he's done in your life to save you, to love you, to bless you. But you totally turn away from all of those things and you look at the one or two things that aren't right in your life right now. And so that's what Adam and Eve did. They looked at the one thing they couldn't have and they said, instead of being grateful for this overwhelming, massive, momentous blessings that they had, they looked at this one little thing and they became ungrateful and then an ingratitude turned to suspicion. They said, he's holding out on us. That's what he's doing. Now think right there. Just that thought he's holding out on us after all he's done for them. They didn't deserve any of it. That thought right there is wicked. They didn't just eat an apple. And then they let that suspicion just grow in their hearts. He's holding out on us. So it came to a place of open rebellion where they said, you know what? God had only given them one command, just one thing. Everything else is for you to do. One thing, just don't eat from this tree. And there's suspicion, suspicion, suspicion. He's holding on us. He's holding on us. Finally, they get to a place where it's open rebellion. We're going to do what we want, not what he wants. We're going to blatantly disregard the only command he gave us, something not to do. And then they put up their noses, and they step across the line, and they say, we defy you. That was not just eating an apple. It was rebellion against God. And guess what? That is the same thing that is behind every one of our Little sins. God has done so much for you. Well, I'm just going to look at a little porn. Come on, it doesn't hurt anyone. God's done so much for you, and you just step over the line and you defy Him. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do the thing that feels good. I'm going to run my business my way. I'm going to run my life my way. And you just stick up your nose. It is not just little. It's open rebellion against this wonderful, amazing, awesome, holy God. See, the only reason we have this idea of little sins is because we judge the size of sins, what we've done, compared to what someone else has done. So we look at, well, this is just a little private sin. Look at these wars and tyranny over here in the world. Look at those young people rioting in Britain. I'm only doing this little thing here, I'm not hurting anyone. So we come up to this conclusion that there's such a thing as a little sin because we compare what we've done to what other people have done. What they've done looks a lot bigger. So we say this is a small sin. But let me tell you this. That's not how you measure how big a sin is. You do not measure how big a sin is by what you have done compared to what someone else has done. You measure it by who you did it against. Your sins are not severe or unsevere because other people have done things that are more severe or more disgusting, your sins are bad because of the wonderful person you did them against. Let, let me illustrate this to you. I just want to bring this home. I want you to see how ridiculous the concept of a little sin is, okay? So imagine with me for a moment that you were all married, okay? Some of you are like, Woohoo, this is a good daydream. <laughs> and uh, so you're all married, okay? And you're going to work one morning... And, and or you're at work one morning and your wife calls you and she's sobbing. <laughs> and you're like, quickly, you know, shut the door and what's the matter, honey? And she's sobbing and sobbing. Well, what's the matter? Okay, well, first thing this morning, she says, you know, my, my, uh, my best friend backstabbed me on Facebook and just, you know, put all my dirty secrets out there that nobody should have known and, and now I'm just humiliated in my friend circles. And you said well, that's pretty bad. And then, she said, and then to kind of I the pain in my heart. I decided to go shopping and buy some things on your Visa card. And, and uh, so I thought that would make me feel better. Well, you guys didn't even think that was funny in this service. But anyway. Because um, <laughs> that's what you guys do, I guess. But anyway. and uh, So I went, I went to the mall. I was just feeling so down. And I went there to buy some things. And these, you know, these teenage uh, hoodlums pushed me into the water fountain and took my purse. And then I went to work. And my boss... Just read me out, falsely accuse me of stuff I never did. In front of everybody else, he was yelling at me, accusing me of these things. And she's like, I'm just, you know, I'm just hurting so bad. And so, so you look at that, I mean, she has been hurt real bad. She's been sinned against three times pretty big, right? Now, what kind of a person would you be if you applied the following logic to this situation? You look at all the big things these other people have done to your wife, and you go, this is my chance to do a little thing. What kind of a person would you be if you go, okay, well, they've done all these big things. Now's my chance to complain about last night's supper. You know what kind of a person you would be? A twisted jerk. <laughs> You'd be a twisted jerk. You'd say, like, that is not, you don't, you don't do a little thing. It's not, oh, all these other people are doing big things to my wife. They've hurt her a lot, so I can hurt her a little. And it's not a big deal. They've angered her a lot, so I can anger her a little. And it's no big deal. What? You love her. That is just a wicked thought to even think that way. It's not little or big compared to what someone else has done. It's big because of who it's against, yeah? And every person here today, I tell that story, you know how absolutely foolish and ridiculous that is. And yet, how often as humans do we apply that exact same reasoning to God? We don't think about the fact that He loves us and gave His Son for us and pursues us and He's holy and good and the source of all life. We don't think about that. We look at what everybody else does and we go, well, it's not so bad. It's not so bad to watch a rated R movie when everybody else is watching a rated X. doesn't seem to hurt anyone. It's not so bad to cheat a little bit on my taxes when other people are just blatantly stealing money from their customers. It's not a big deal. And so we water it down by looking at everyone else rather than looking at the wonderful person against whom we're sitting. There is no such thing as a little sin when it's done against an awesome, good God. Amen? Second. Second assumption. That's the first assumption that there is such a thing as a little sin. Second assumption is this. And it's very closely tied to the first one. But the second assumption is that a little bit of sin doesn't ruin everything in the universe. I mean, how, I mean, I already told you before how a wall came up between God and creation, but I'll just answer this from a different, different perspective now. But some of you are still, you, you grapple. Ah, God can fix this without having to fix this, can't he? And we don't see how a little bit of sin ruins everything. There is no such thing as drawing a line down the middle and saying, God, fix these, but not these. So let me give you a picture of that, too. You come to me with your drinking bottle this week sometime, and I'll take you to the Steinbeck Lagoon, and I'll take a teaspoon of human waste out of the lagoon, put it in your drinking water, put up the bottle, shake it up real good, and say, have a drink. And you would say, yuck! And I would say, it's like one part in 500. It's like one part in a thousand. Why would you not drink that? There's hardly anything in there. It's just a little bit. Just drink the water. And you would say, any amount wrecks the whole thing. Okay, fine. I won't put it in your drinking water. I'll just take the lid off and just kind of touch it on a tip where you're going to put your mouth. And I'll even rub it off with my t-shirt. It's not even there anymore. Have a drink. Never. That's disgusting. See, a little bit. You don't have a little bit. and Well, it was just a little bit of waste. And "Mm, it's so good. (laughs) It's the same with sin. You don't put a a drop of sin into God's perfect holy universe and go, well, just deal with that stuff over there. It can't happen. There's no such thing as a little sin. And there's no such thing as a little sin that doesn't ruin everything. Now we've got some understanding. Now we can start to move towards... Old Testament violence. So, now there's a big problem, right? It's a big problem. Sin has entered the universe. It has messed up the world. It has brought death and decay and destruction. And like I said, I mean, this is a huge problem. First of all, uh, because God, I mean, the only way for him to clean it up is to get rid of all the sinners. Okay? So that's, that's a bad problem for us. It's also a bad problem for God because... He want, he, the reason he made us in the first place was because he wanted to live with us forever and he would enjoy us and we would enjoy him. So what's God going to do? Well, you all know where this is going. He's going to mount a rescue operation, right? But mounting a rescue operation here is going to be very, very tricky. Why? Well, the first reason why is because the wages of sin is death. Remember, when, when the light goes out, you got dark. It's the absence of light. And the wages of sin is death. Well, the only way to get that light back on is to pay the penalty. That, that death penalty. Well, this is very tricky because God can't die. So he can't, he can't pay it. He can't just die and then everything's fixed. He can't do it. Okay? This gets even trickier because so now you need a human being to die to get the light back on. You've got to pay the wages of sin here. So you need a human being to die. Well, the only thing is you can't just have any human being die for the rest because a sick human being dying for sick human beings doesn't help. I mean, a person who's got anemia and they need a blood transfusion, you don't just give them a blood transfusion from anyone. You don't give them a blood transfusion from someone else that has anemia. That doesn't help. A person who has anemia needs a blood transfusion needs a blood transfusion from someone healthy. And so if you're gonna fix this death and decay problem in human beings, you can't just have a human being with death and decay in his blood die for everyone else. So Satan, when he gets, when he tempts Adam and Eve and they sin and they bring it into the universe, he thinks it's game over. God can't die, human being can't die to fix it. There's no fixing this problem. It's done. That's what he thinks. Of course, like I said before, you all know where this is going, right? Little does he know that God has got this other plan, and we've just gotten so used to it, we've failed to marvel at it anymore. But I want you to see this from Satan's point of view, you know, 6,000 years ago. He, I mean, he, and Satan is a, has got a brilliant mind. There's no way he's got God cornered, and he doesn't realize that God has this amazing plan of having his son be born into the human race. So he'll be a perfect human being. God will become a human being and then he'll die for the human race. It is, I mean, now we just heard the story so many times, like, (gasps) move to the next point, right? This is an absolutely marvelous, unbelievable, genius work of a plan to rescue the world without having to kill everybody, that he can save at least some. Okay? They say, again, I don't see what this has to do with Old Testament violence. Ah, let's let's bring it around to that. Here's the thing you have to see. Right at the point... When they sinned. So Satan thinks he's one. This is in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sinned. The whole universe is poisoned. Death and decay starts. And it's right at this moment when God already prophesies to Satan that he's going to defeat him. And it's right at this point when God prophesies. This is 6,000 years ago. This is right at the very start of all the problems. God says, he says, a man. I'm going to have a man be born to a woman. And that man is going to defeat you. I want to show you this. Genesis chapter 3. So the Lord God said to the serpent, right after the sin happens, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl in your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. So she's going to have offspring, she's going to have babies, they're going to have babies, they're going to have babies, the human race is going to have lots of babies. And we here at Southland are contributing to that, I love it. Okay? And I'm personally doing my part as well. And between your offspring and hers, so there's going to be enmity between, you know, the human race and you, he, singular, one offspring, a male offspring. So Eve's going to have babies, they're going to have babies, they're going to have babies. At some point, a he, a man is going to be born. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. Right at the very beginning, Satan thinks, yes, it's ruined. There's no getting around this God, and he's he's got a brilliant mind, and he he can't figure it out, and God says, actually, I've already got away. I've got it all planned out. A man's going to be born, and that man is going to crush your head, and you're going to be defeated. And you say, again, what does this have to do with Old Testament violence? Everything. This is the context. This is now the context, the backdrop against which everything in the Old Testament happens. See, for the next 4,000 years, from this prophecy until when Jesus dies on the cross, Satan has only one overarching goal. There's only one obsession in his heart and in his mind. And all of his energy is poured into one thing. That is, keep that man from being born. That's everything. The whole story, the Old Testament, the big part of the Old Testament is just a story of this cosmic struggle of Satan trying to keep this, he, offspring, from being born, because that's the only way Satan can survive. He said, God says, uh, he, a man-child, is going to be born to a woman, that man-child is going to crush your head, Satan goes, okay, I've got to keep that man-child from being born. He's got two ways of doing it, okay? First way is just destroy all of Jesus' ancestors, destroy the bloodline so that Jesus can't be born. And so you'll see this right throughout. This explains right here a whole bunch of violence in the Old Testament. You'll see stuff like, what's the first thing that the evil Pharaoh did when he came to power in Egypt? He tried to kill all the Hebrew babies. And what did Herod do when he heard the wise men had been in Bethlehem? Kill all the male babies. And you'll see stuff like this right throughout the Old Testament. There's a whole bunch of carnage because what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to doom mankind and save himself. He's trying to do away with God's salvation plan and keep the Messiah from being born. And so the best way to do that is either just destroy all humans or at least destroy the humans who are going to be Jesus' ancestors and he can't be born. And if that doesn't work, then Satan has a plan B and he's constantly working both plan A and plan B. By the way, he's got a similar plan right now going for the end times, but it's not to keep Jesus from being born now. It's to keep the Jews from welcoming him back because in Matthew 23, Jesus said, I won't come back till you welcome me. So Satan can either kill all the Jews or keep them out of Jerusalem or keep them from loving Jesus, then Jesus can't come back a second time. And that's, by the way, why there's a whole lot of hate for Israel out there these days. But I digress. It has nothing to do with this. So we come back here. Where was I? Satan tries to knock out the bloodline. Second thing is, if I can't knock it out, I'll corrupt it. I'll corrupt it. I've got to make it so that there isn't any obedient women left like Mary to be able to even have Jesus. If I can't get rid of the bloodline, I'm going to corrupt it. And so the whole Old Testament is Satan trying to destroy the bloodline and corrupt the bloodline so Jesus can't be born. And then, of course, you've got God on the opposite side. We're sovereignly working. It's not like a competition between two equals, Satan and God. God is you know, infinitely above Satan. So we see God sovereignly working throughout the Old Testament, Satan trying to destroy. God choosing people for the bloodline. It starts with Noah. He's looking for obedient people. And then Abraham and then Isaac And then Jacob, and on, and he picks Ruth, and on and on, to King David, and on and on and on and on, down until we get Mary having Jesus. And so you've got this cosmic struggle, God, or Satan trying to get rid of the bloodline, and God protecting, expanding, making room for the bloodline and for the Messiah to come. Okay? Very, very important. Now, with that as context, next week we're going to look at lots of specific examples Of how in this context of this war, God now has to use war as a way of protecting the seed. But it's not because God is vengeful. It's because God is working to protect humanity. He's cutting out aggressive tumors before they kill the whole patient. You can't understand the wars in the Old Testament until you understand that God's trying to save us. And so you have some of these wars. where you have wars of extermination, different things going on, right? But I'm going to get into those specifically next week. Let's just look at one thing here today before we're done. Let's look at the flood, okay? Because again, people look at the flood, oh, how can God be so this and that? Let's look at the flood. Genesis 3, God comes to Satan and says, a man's going to be born, he's going to crush your head. Genesis chapter 4, we have some stories about Adam's family, it starts to get very gruesome very quickly. Genesis 5 is a genealogy. Genesis 6, we have Satan's first systematic attempt to get rid of the bloodline. And, let's look, and then it leads up to the flood. Let's look at it. Genesis 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. By the way, we're going to look at now some passages in these last five minutes here that uh, maybe have puzzled some of you. These are passages that you, we usually just ignore. Okay? we Just leave them alone. Let's, let's see what's happening here. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. What's happening here? Sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they started to come down and take them as wives. Who are the sons of God? Evil demonic angels. Evil demonic angels look down at the daughters of men. They look at human women and they start to take them as wives because they want to have babies with them. You say, what? What? This is in the Bible? Oh yeah, wait. We'll just keep following this rabbit hole a little bit. Okay? This is all in the Bible. We're going to just read it. It's all here, right here, and then we'll look at the New Testament a little bit. Sons of God said the daughters of men were attractive. They come down and they start to ha- want to have babies with them. This, by the way, is one of the most wicked events in all of human history. It is the only event in human history that triggered a worldwide judgment event. A worldwide flood. God wiped out every human being on the face of the earth except for Noah. And this is why this event, this, what they were doing here was so wicked, it required that kind, of, that kind of a response from God. The second reason we know this is one of the most wicked events happened in all of human history, as we'll see in the a, in a, in a New Testament in just a, a minute here, is that these angels that participated in this got locked up in prisons already back at the flood. God was so angry with them he locked them up already and that's significant because there's still lots of evil demons and Satan himself isn't locked up right now. All the rest of them, they're not getting locked up until Jesus comes back but these angels are already locked up and have been for thousands of years. Say, so what on earth is going on? Why would these demonic angels come down and try to have babies with, with women? Well, it only makes sense when you realize the struggle Satan is trying to keep Jesus from being born and the Messiah can't be born with demon blood. He's got to be all human. He can't be born into a demonic bloodline. Satan is trying to destroy and corrupt the bloodline that Jesus is coming into. Let's keep reading. Again, like I said, some of you are going, this is in the Bible? Oh, it's awesome, the Bible. Everything in here. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Again, this is so wicked again that God right here in one thing says, I am shortening man's lifespan right now. Because things just got corrupt. You've got these demonic beings uh, going around. The Nephilim, by the way, the word Nephilim there means giants. That's literally what it means, giants. It can also mean fallen ones. Okay, so speaking of fallen angels there, but they're giants. And incidentally, they have found a number, archaeologists have found a number of sites in the Middle East. They have found things that are unexplainable. They've found uh, the remains of houses and beds, doorways, things like that, that are absolutely humongous. Massive people. I mean, you think ahead to the Israelites going into the Promised Land. And they saw the Anakites, and the Anakites were nephilim as well. I'm not going to get into how they ended up back on the other side of the flood again, but anyway, they uh, they, they said we were like grasshoppers in their sight. I mean, these are huge, super beings. So nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God, these demonic angels, came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. Okay, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. These are the legends. It's all in your Bible. You can look this up. is ESV. It's a very accurate translation. You can go look it up in your own Bibles. These were the, the men. Can you go back one? Uh, one there, Egan, thanks. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. These are the legends. You know, some of the uh, pagan religions and the mythology, the Greek mythology, some of these, uh, you know, god men that they talk about, like Zeus and Achilles and some of these stories, some of them, what the Bible is telling us here is that some of those stories might be based loosely on, Or might have some root in a reality of some of these demonic super beings that were on the world. Just corrupt, evil beings. They were corrupting the whole earth. They were taking human wives and having kids and leading the whole human race astray. This is just vile. They were leading them into evilness. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let me tell you, the flood was God's mercy. And Noah preached for 120 years. He preached righteousness, it says in the Bible. And he told human beings, Don't follow these super beings. But people were being forced. They were being enticed by these evil beings with superpowers uh, or superhuman powers they are very strong and big, and they were being enticed, and they were all following these demonic creatures into absolute vile wickedness. And so finally God said, I've got to cut out this tumor before it kills the whole patient. Because if God doesn't send the flood and keep knowing his family, the last one's left alive, if he doesn't send it, we don't get a Messiah born, and none of us here today are going to be saved. And the human race is doomed forever. It's God's mercy. I know that some of you may be having a hard time getting your head around this whole thing. Let me just briefly zip through a couple of passages and we'll be done in the New Testament. Jude 1 verse 6 says this. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. This passage doesn't make any sense until you understand Genesis 6. Because we know that the demons and the angels and Satan himself aren't locked up until the judgment day. They won't be locked up until the judgment day. So this doesn't make sense until you look. The angels who did not stay within their position of authority, they didn't stay where they were supposed to stay. They came down and mixed with humans in ways they were not supposed to mix with them. So God said to those angels, you're locked up for good. Second Peter 2, 4-5, I'm going to help you make sense now of some of these passages. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Again, that makes no sense because if, unless you understand Genesis 6, because all the other angels we know, they're just out and about now, even the evil ones too. But well, there are some angels that weren't spared. And who, and who were those ones? If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah. So again, here we're talking about Noah again. a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And last passage and then we'll be done. 1 Peter three eighteen to 20 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I get questions about this passage regularly. Because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited when? In the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely through the water. I often get questions about this passage. People say, what in the world? Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison who were disobedient in the times of Noah. What is that talking about? Here's what happened. Jesus died on the cross. He's in the grave. His physical body is in the grave for three days. While his body's in the grave, his spirit goes down and preaches to the only spirits that are locked up in hell. There's only one set of spirits. Everybody else has to wait till judgment. There's only one set of spirits. And he goes down it's these set of spirits that tried to keep him from being born. He wasn't preaching to them to get saved. By the way, nobody who's dead can get saved. You're saved when you die or you're not. So this is not preaching about getting people saved. But Jesus goes down while he's on the cross and he goes down and he says, hey, I'm the one you guys tried to keep from being born. And it's like David when he held up the head of Goliath and, they, and, and Israel triumphed over the Philistines. Jesus went down to the spirits who had made the worst and most wicked attempt in history to stop him from being bored. He went down and said, here I am. Bow your heads with me, close your eyes. The flood was God's mercy. God made the world good. Humans have messed up the world. But God is fixing it in his love and goodness. And he's going to come back someday and he's going to get rid of all the problems. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for the understanding you're giving us of your word. We love your word. We love your goodness. We love your justice. We love your mercy. We love your brilliant genius as we see you thwarting the devil's evil plans. May we fall more and more in love with you. In your name we pray. Amen.